0: Hey, folks, it's Dan. Just a quick note, the audio quality on this particular interview is not very good. I apologize for that, and we're working to make it better. Just one of the many reasons why we need your support to keep improving the show. Thanks for understanding.
1: I don't think there are Appalachian problems or Appalachian solutions. I think there are local problems and solutions, and people maybe also don't understand the, uh, the diversity that exists among places in Appalachia and the challenges that exist.
0: Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner, and that was Randy Lighty, Executive Director of the Appalachian Children Coalition. On today's episode, I talk with Randy and his colleague Patrick Coniglia, who's a policy and research fellow at ACC, about the enormous barriers that exist in addressing health disparities facing children living in Appalachian, Ohio, and especially disparities in behavioral health. While we talk a lot about behavioral health and addiction on this show, I know listeners are going to learn a lot from what Randy and Patrick bring to the table, namely a laser sharp focus on one of Ohio's most underserved populations. Real quick before turning to the interview, just a reminder to visit Prognosis Ohio to check out our show notes, archive, and also to learn how you can support the show so we can keep it rolling. Aside from financial support, which we do really need, but understand that everybody's not in a position to help out with, really, we just need to ask you to tell your friends and colleagues about the show. After all, we do this to generate conversation about health and healthcare, public health, and the challenges that face Ohio. That's what it's all about. Okay, now to my conversation with Randy Lighty and Patrick Caniglia of the Appalachian Children Coalition. Randy and Patrick,
1: thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I'm glad to be here. This is—I've uh, listened and enjoyed your podcast for a long time, so I'm, I'm honored to, to be on it finally. And we're old
0: colleagues uh, from your high university days.
1: Yes, yeah, we uh, spent several years together there, I think, and then. Uh, like everything else, COVID came along and changed all of our lives there. But uh, it's it's good to reconnect with you. Yeah. So they, they, it's really a great
0: opportunity to get into some of the new work you're doing, um, you know, with the Appalachian Children Coalition. Um, I want to start with the big picture. I mean, there's a lot of details to get into, but I always like to give listeners a little bit of sort of the, the, the broad lens here. Uh, I'm a fan of Elizabeth Cates' um, What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. I don't know if you know this book. And and, and if listeners don't, they they should know it, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, I'd like to ask you, Randy, just to start, what do you think people – under, do you think they understand Appalachia, the broader kind of social challenges? Have we made some progress in that? Um, and what don't they know that they should from the work that you've been doing?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I think we've made progress. But at the same time, there's still a lot of stereotypical beliefs about Appalachia. If, if you've not lived there, um, it, it's hard to understand the the immensity of some of the challenges that are there. You know, And, and, and it's a region that... In Ohio, it's 32 counties. It's 40% of the state's landmass. It's 25% of the population. Yeah, and, look at and the map. It's a huge it's part huge. of the state. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and there's just this, this incredible lack of services. Because of the topography of the land, uh, you know the, the the distribution of the people and and so I don't know that people understand the magnitude of 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 the impact on life by a lack of access to services um and and what parents have to go through to try to get their kids the supports that they need to be successful. Yeah, we had the situation in East Palestine. Um, you
0: know, we now have J.D. Vance, our senator, and that generated some of the conversation around Appalachia that led to Elizabeth Cade writing that book in the first place. Um, and and your website alludes to the problem uh, of kids in Appalachian, Ohio, suffering in silence, and that kind of got me thinking about the, the, the question of stigma. Like, is there still this kind of... You know, uh, just failure to even address or to talk about issues. Some of these issues, and is that kind of some of the work you do with your organization, kind of unearthing that and making sure that we are talking directly about these things.
1: Yeah, that's really a big part of it. I think in in behavioral health, anyway, there's there there are a lot of problems that people try to keep hidden, or or they occur in in somewhat of a silent way, right? And then the people who experience them. Feel embarrassed or stigmatized by those, uh, and and so that's part of the challenge. There's also a lot of things, and this has been magnified by COVID. A lot of problems become apparent in in the privacy of home, and 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 kids are perhaps not as engaged in their communities as they maybe were at one point. And so, a lot of the work we do is really trying to help understand the scope of problems, uh, where 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 problems exist, um, uh, and and then trying to look at what are the solutions for those. I mean, the other thing that's important, we talk about Appalachia, our, our name is Appalachian Children Coalition, but I don't think there are Appalachian problems or Appalachian solutions. I think there are local problems and solutions, and people maybe also don't understand the uh, the diversity that exists among places in Appalachia and the challenges that exist among places.
0: Yeah, and that's one of Elizabeth Cates' um, points, is actually, if you actually spend some time in these places, you're like wow, I didn't know these types of people with these types of ideas because it doesn't fit the stereotype that that has been out there. It, we're going to turn to workforce issues in a moment, but I, I would like to also just kind of give listeners a, a little bit of a snapshot of the public health and healthcare situation generally. I mean, what are some of the indicators, some of the outcomes that are important to you in doing the work you're doing? I mean, I wonder, if, Patrick, if you wanted to start off a little bit here.
2: Yeah, just to sort of Lay the land a bit on behavioral health outcomes right now in Appalachia. Um, about half of adolescents meet diagnostic criteria for mental illness. So that's a huge factor alone, but also less than half of those kids are receiving treatment. So, um, that really shows the, the immense need and demand for, for workforce specific, specifically. I know you said we're, yeah. we'll get to that in a second, but, um, that's just really a, a huge Component of it, and what else, Randy? What other things do you
1: look at? Well, I think certainly to, to build on that, you know, if if you look across America uh, per capita, there's about one behavioral health professional for every 390 people. In Ohio, it's one for every 700. In Appalachian Ohio, it's one for about every 2,500. And yeah. and so you have this 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 lack of providers workforce is a major issue. Uh, but but then there are other issues as well. You know, you have 32 counties, 40 percent of the state, six children's hospitals in the state, none located in Appalachia. Uh, you've got a a just a, a general lack in many communities of any services. You can go to the counties in Appalachia. I'm thinking, you know, places like Benton County, Morgan County, where you might not find a a, a single provider uh, often. Lack of workforce across all dimensions of care is critical. But there are a couple of others. Uh, Another one is lack of access to strong data. Uh, the, The state of Ohio collects a lot of data on kids. That data isn't available to people who are trying to make decisions about service investments, right? So one thing we try to do is is engaged the departments of health mental health and addiction services job and family services education to see if we can gain access to data and make that data available to people so so when they're making decisions about where do we put a clinic where do we deliver services it's not on guesses and assumptions yeah you know, so there's this data lack and then the third lack is is technology you know there are still About 10% of Appalachian children have no broadband access in their homes. Um, Many other children may have broadband, but they don't have the equipment in their homes to use it, the knowledge to use it. Uh, So so I think if, if we could address the technology, the data, and the workforce challenges, those become the foundations on which we can build all the services that kids need. Of course, and you know, not to make a make light of this, but when you
0: say we just need to address the technology, the workforce, and the service—I mean, that's huge, (laughs) right? That's—I mean, that's that. This isn't; these are not targeted small things. These are like foundational problems that nothing else can happen without addressing them in some
1: way. No, it is huge, Uh, and and there's been progress made. I mean, the state has made some major investments in broadband access. There's still a lot more to be done, though, right? And 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 that's the other problem we have. Is we we look at investments that are being made in Appalachia, and, and certainly the broadband investment, uh, the Appalachian Community Grant Program, the the, the five hundred million dollars that the state is dedicated for Appalachian development, those sorts of things are certainly great steps forward. But they are just steps; they're not the totality of the solution. The problem is many people believe. They're the totality of the solution. We've now done what we need to, yeah. and that's just not the case.
0: Let's turn to Patrick for a moment now. I mean, your, your work with the organization is primarily in the area of workforce and behavioral health workforce, uh, and this is a huge problem. I mean, the healthcare workforce in Ohio is a huge problem itself. We can talk about what that looks like. We talk, you know, I teach at a medical school. Randy was dean of a school that had all sorts of other health professionals, and we're trying to figure out how to bring all these different pieces together. We've already talked about oral health. I mean, there's so many different layers here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a problem in the state. It's a problem particularly in, in, in Appalachian, Ohio. I mean, every number that you look statewide then gets compounded by the issues uh, because of poverty and uh, other, other social indicators. It's, it's, it's a challenging enough problem to find a behavioral health provider in urban centers in Ohio sometimes. But if you're in Appalachian, Ohio, it's extremely hard. So let's just talk about what some of the solutions, some, some of the things you're looking at to try to get some leverage on this. And I'll just bracket because I'm guessing it's going to come up. Everybody talks about telemedicine, telemedicine. Right. And I know that's important. But ultimately, that can't be the entire part of the story. And I, I worry sometimes that it feels like that's what people are doing because they have no other
2: ideas. Yeah. So I, I think just to preface that, I'd like to kind of tell like a brief story just to really give an illustration, like a microcosm of the both the demand and uh, the barriers to workforce development. So in uh, Megs County, um, this past summer, they built a beautiful. Um, 16-bed crisis stabilization center for kids. Um, Not one like it in Appalachian, Ohio. And like, you know, Randy had said previously in that uh, story um, with someone's child attempting suicide four times, like they'd need to send the child to Cincinnati, sending kids to Columbus, Youngstown to Mm -hmm. get the behavioral health care they need. So this was an extremely needed facility, um, incredible work by the Adam board director and uh, Jackson or Gallia Jackson Meggs um, Robin Harris incredible effort, incredible work uh, to get this done. It was ribbon cutting was in July since there have not been any kids treated mm-hmm. in this this facility and that's because they had the fully licensed professionals hired you know their day treatment therapists full time that was good to go they did not have those day to day behavior specialists they they could not get those positions filled couldn't staff the place right exactly and so that that goes in to show again you know they need this facility the demand is there we just talked about that but also the barriers to workforce development really persist, and that includes things like uh, I mean for starters, low pay, um, which is caused by reimbursement rates. you know would you rather work 16 get 16 bucks an hour working as a behavior specialist or 20 bucks an hour as a manager at Wendy's right you know there's there's those decisions that, that people need to make. Um, so low pay through things such as reimbursement rates, you know yeah. uh, those are dire- directly correlated in behavioral health. Um, but also, um, you know, things such as uh, burnout rates and also long educational tracks, right? You know, I'm, I'm in my master's in social work. I got my bachelor's degree. That took four years. My master's in social work will take two years. And then to get to the top of my, light, my, my uh, abilities, my uh, potential avenues as a social worker, I need to go two more years at least to get my independent licensure to open those doors. That's an eight-year track for a position that you know you're not making a ton of money in. Right. Um, so there's there's a lot of barriers. It's, uh, it's something
0: there. we don't talk about enough: the the extent to which the highest impact perf- positions within healthcare mm-hmm. are increasingly low wage. I mean, these are people doing really important work. I know home health care is something I, I see on your website, your organization sees value in. And it's something going back to the Kasich administration, we've been taking seriously in the state and trying to look at um, these. But these are vulnerable positions going into people's homes, uh, you know, the kind of work. I mean, we we need people to feel protected. We need them to feel supported. And we also need to compensate them well, especially. And I'll make some more comments on this in a moment, but especially if we're trying to convince people to go to regions that they, out of school, aren't necessarily looking at. I mean, we really need to pay people well to make a major life change of this sort, right? I wonder, Randy, I mean, do you want to
1: add add to that? No, I think you're right. I think the the, the problem we've had in addressing workforce is when people have made attempts, they've been very unidimensional attempts, we will provide student loan forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That's all that we've done. Well, the problem is much more multidimensional, right? So it is financial in some cases, and that, that's not necessarily just the cost of becoming a licensed independent social worker. But I, you know, there, there are people who may aspire to be community health workers, which, mm-hmm. which you can get that training for free, but they can't afford childcare to go to the training. I mean, you know, so so financial is a part of it. I think the the lifestyle quality of life is a part of it yeah you know, what i found when i was dean with with talking to to young people in our college so many of them wanted to go to the big city when they got out of school and they 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 wanted that kind of lifestyle i think we need to do more to engage people who really want to live in Appalachian communities and, and that may be finding people from those communities yeah. to stay there. I, I think there's, there are other issues. It's, it's high burnout work. Um, and I also think we can do something that that eight year timeline that Patrick mentioned, I think there's work we can do to try to find ways to stream like that. So we're working with higher education institutions to see if there are maybe different models that would let people proceed in a, in, a, in a bit more streamlined way to get to those those higher level credentials. Um, maybe models of education that have a, a more of an experiential component. You, you've always got the challenges of accreditation, but I do think um, we we can find ways to to reduce some of the hurdles that people have to jump over to get from start to end as they're pursuing their education.
0: Yeah. I mean, you also mentioned something that we, you know, we deal with at the medical school. You know, we we do ask uh, students or applicants, you know, what's your interest in underserved populations? And this word underserved is, I think, underserving us a bit in the sense that most people and are talking about ending up in urban contexts and, and willing to do that work. And you ask folks, you know, well, what about uh, serving in rural contexts? And, you know, look, you can't blame an applicant to a medical school or the College of Health Sciences and Professions for saying kind of what they need to do to get into school. But to say, no, no, I'm definitely I would keep an open mind about rural work. And but like ultimately, when you push a little bit, it's not quite there. But Randy, you pointed to the, the real secret sauce here, which is we need to recruit from these communities. We need people who come out of these communities. But the problem is compounded there because the schools, you know, are lacking. There's enormous entrenched poverty. Just the social determinants undercut that effort. So, you know, how do we start recruiting in a place where there really isn't a foundation for
2: doing that work? Yeah, so one big thing that we're working on in the ACC is getting in front of as many young people, people looking to change careers, people in recovery, anyone who might be interested in a career in behavioral health, giving them access to those opportunities and showing them, you know, it's it's not just a, a path to a master's in social work. It's community health workers. It's um, licensed dependency counselors. There's all these tracks. And that and, and getting in front of people and educating on what be- careers in behavior he- behavioral health look like, providing career counseling, things like that, that can really um, help in reducing that stigma yeah. of what a career in behavioral health looks like. Um, you know, we're working towards uh, having high school internships and uh, things to that degree to get students and people looking into that career uh, opportunities in the field. I'm so glad you mentioned, you know, people
0: in recovery and things like that. I mean, we need to wrap our arms around and open our arms more to people who not only have gone through recovery or in recovery, but people who may have convictions, right? I mean, we need to really think about bringing people who have experienced these communities into the fold. And there's a little bit of progress there. There are some nice examples of employers that have started to say, I'm, you know, I'm willing to look at that where they weren't 10 years ago. But we can't, I mean, the, the, the community has been so traumatized for so long that you need to aggressively welcome them back into these worlds if we're going to leverage all that they have to offer.
2: Yeah, and I'd say going off of that, you know, I, I do my placement hours in an agency where peer recovery's uh, support is huge. So, I think that that's a really important niche that that people in recovery um, looking to, to really make a huge impact, they, they do that and, and they do that better than a lot of mental health professionals, yeah. because not only do they have that empathy and, and support and they actively listen and all those essential skills as, you know, the ideal mental health provider, but they also have that lived experience. So it's really important.
0: What other policy tools, Rand- Randy, do we have to address the workforce issue? I mean, we talk about recruiting within communities and kind of all of that. Um, and you talked about the kind of limited uh, efficacy of things like Debt forgiveness, or you know, like all of that. Are there other policy tools out there that you're looking to Columbus, to the state legislature, to anybody to start to to look at?
1: Yeah, we really are. You know, I I think one that that Patrick alluded to uh, that that is a foundational challenge is the issue of reimbursement rates and the fact that uh, uh, organizations are not able to to bill or be reimbursed for services at a rate that they can they can provide meaningful sustainable salaries and so the the work on medicaid reimbursement uh, the work with uh commercial insurance reimbursement i think is is absolutely critical uh i also think there's there's a lot of work to be done around stigma and, and not just stigma among those who who are experiencing issues but there's also a pattern of stigma uh that some experience when they're trying to, to work with people experiencing those issues. And and so I think, you know, the stigma impacts workforce as well, and I think we need to address that. I'd also say I think that and, and I give the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services credit for this, right now they they formed a statewide tax, task force Looking at workforce issues, and I, I'm really excited to see what comes out of that. Uh, they've actually developed a set of recommendations. I think there are 79 of them mm. uh, to try to address workforce issues. A lot of those are awareness building. Uh, a, a lot of those are are supports to get education. But what's really definitive in that is is that it really is multidimensional, right? So so we have a behavioral health workforce hub we've started that that is trying to address workforce issues in our region and the awareness side we do a lot of different things right the way you engage and in interest a 17 year old is different than the way you engage and, and build interest in, in a forty-year-old, right? And so, we're doing a lot of things. As I say, we we now have a program where we will pay high school students that want to do internships. We can give them paid internships. Uh, we have a coaching model where where we can engage people individually through a twelve-step, uh, twelve-stage coaching process. Um, we, we can really, I think, the answer is tailor the supports to each individual. Uh, what, what doesn't work is to say, here's what we do, and it works for everybody, yep. right? You got to be much more tailored than that. It's hard enough
0: to find a behavioral health service uh, in general. But if you're LGBTQ, if you're looking for a non-religiously affiliated institution for, for various reasons, you basically have to go to Columbus or Cincinnati or somewhere, right? I mean, there, there, there are a few things developing and I think that maybe we should spotlight them more. But, you know, you talk about stigma. I mean, I, I wonder it, to a certain degree, the good work you're doing is also trying to push a rock up a hill at a time where there are a lot of forces, there are a lot of headwinds, right, coming at you. So how do you have these conversations with, you know, people in Columbus, at the state house, with the governor, with the various agencies to say, look, you know, there's a conservative sort of uh, climate here where there's not a lot of people who are comfortable with all of this, but we simply can't address the health challenges unless we take this seriously. Like, can you use health data? Can you use outcome to push through those Views that people may have,
1: you know, I think to some degree you can, but but it is a challenge, and and so we're at a time, it's it, it's just an interesting time in that we have uh, a governor right now, Governor Dewine, who is incredibly interested in and supportive of children, yep. and and he is certainly there's a lot of examples of our governor. Putting his money where his mouth is and making an investments in, in kids. He has a lot of interest in Appalachia. Um, uh, you, you combine that with the fact that we're at a time where there is a lot of federal money right now uh, yeah, because money. of COVID. Yeah. Arpa money is mm-hmm. coming. That those monies will go away. But then again, on the other side, as you mentioned, we have this 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 tendency in our state, uh, as well as many others, to 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 work to exclude you know, people based on other statuses, right? And and so the challenge becomes in our region, you've got multiple statuses that come into play. So you you've certainly got still a lot of the the uh leftover hillbilly stereotypes in our region. As you say, you've got people who have other statuses, be they racial, um you know sexual orientation that come into play. And 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 I think Where I try to focus is, look, at the end of the day, from our coalition and our focus is perspective, you want to help kids. You don't want kids to fail, right? And, and if we can develop services that help kids, to what degree can we, within those services, make sure we're, we're helping kids that have whatever the issues are? I was at a, I was in a meeting yesterday with, with leadership of a school district in the eastern part of the state, and we were talking about how to, how to meet the needs of their kids, and they weren't, talking about, we just need to do healthcare for all. They were saying, look, we have LGBTQ kids that can't get help. We have kids with eating disorders that can't get help. We have kids that are abusing substances that can't get help because among the few behavioral health professionals we have, none of them have the training they need to deal with those kids and those issues. So can we, in in building?" training programs and recruiting people. How do we make sure we're recruiting people with those, those levels of understanding and those, those areas of competency, right? Yeah. And, and I think you can do that if you're generating support to build, a, to build this multidimensional system. But it is, it is a challenge yeah. because you can't, sometimes, unfortunately, you can't just go out and say, look, we want to help these kids that, that maybe are in these statuses that right now, uh, politically, they seem to be targets.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you can't really have a serious conversation about workforce if pediatricians don't want to practice in Ohio, not even to mention Appalachian, Ohio. I mean, we look at the new data coming out. I'm I'm taking a very physician centric approach because I work at a medical school, (laughs) Um, but you know, uh, obstetrician, gynecologists, I mean, they're down, right? They're down nationally. They're down even more in Ohio. Does this have something to do with the broader climate that we're creating are we creating a place where somebody says you know what I feel comfortable practicing here I feel like it can make a difference I can serve my patients well I mean we really need to take this seriously or we're going to end up going the opposite direction and I know there's other health professionals we're going be talking about nurses and nurse retention and, and all the and, you know physician assistants and 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 all these different people but i what I see is a, a little bit of um I don't know if Ohio is the place for me because I don't know if I'm going to be truly supported here. In some cases, it's I may be criminally liable for something mm. that I did only to support my my patients.
1: Right. It, well, and to go back to the individual child, um, how much harder is it for a child when they have these multiple areas of stereotypical view or whatever? You know, that they're they're rural, they're Appalachian. Those things come with with these these beliefs that may not be well-founded, you layer into that, you know, if they're LGBTQ on top of that or, or, you know, racial status on top of that, ethnic status, you now have a kid who's got multiple dimensions mm-hmm. that, that really face these, these challenges, Compounding right? Compounding each right. other, right? Yeah. And, and you just think about that child as an individual, For, forget the population, that child as an individual, how much harder their life, and how much more extensive their challenges are going to be because you've layered all that in. And then if we build a system that only addresses some of those dimensions and not all of them, you're not going to, Ultimately, give that child everything they need to be successful. But before we move to
0: my last question, I do just want to give Patrick a chance to, from your perspective, also you know studying social work, mm-hmm. the research you're doing. Um, when you think about this question of um, LGBTQ, but also just any kind of sort of place in our, within our broader culture where
2: you're you're struggling to meet their particular needs. Yeah, so I, I think that what Randy said really uh, hit the nail on the head, and that these kids are facing these. Uh, intersectional challenges, right? LGBTQ in a rural, almost uh, can be isolated environment with with bad internet access, right. and, and
0: and I say that because the internet yeah. has been a real right. godsend to people who feel excluded from their society.
2: Definitely, and I, and I think. Also, it, it's important to note that the risks of that and, and outcomes are very real. You know, LGBTQ kids have higher rates of suicide and and things of that nature. But I think and I know, obviously, we've talked a ton about these these challenges and they're an immense challenges across the board when we we're talking about workforce and we we're talking about uh even, you know, Appalachian challenges like poverty and those things. But I, I think in practicing social work, I, I think it's, it's critical to also leverage the strengths of the region going forward. What are they? Um, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think. Uh, the, the biggest thing has been the resilience of, of Appalachians. Appalachians are incredibly hard workers. And that has really shown and in, in just personally seeing it and treatment, they come motivated, ready to make positive change, eager to get back in their workforce, whatever their line of work is. And these personal strengths, this resilience. You know, I, I've worked with, with people and, and, and pretty much every client I've seen, I've been like, if I was in your position, mm-hmm. there's no way I would be alive, let alone coming into treatment. Yeah. And so I think mm-hmm. utilizing those strengths, that's really attractive for practitioners looking to come to, to Appalachia. Um, and it's obviously important for those uh, individuals and kids. Since this, this is an audio
0: medium, I'll tell listeners, I mean, your face glows when you talk about the strength of your, right. the people you work with. And, and, and I mean, obviously we need that. I will just say, I mean, you know, as a policy person, mm-hmm. like I obviously think resilience, I, I'm glad people are resilient because it helps mm-hmm. them survive. But our job as policy people is to make them not need to be as resilient to lift a little bit of that weight off of them because resilience. I always try to think of the, the, the side of this. Where resilience is to some degree a response to a policy failure, right, and and to not helping people to live their best lives, not making right. it just a little bit easier, even. So I, I appreciate that, but I also think yeah. it's important just to realize that we've made it hard for people to mm-hmm.
1: thrive. Definitely. You know, it, it's not like resilience itself is the way to overcome every problem, right? Mm-hmm. There are challenges. I I may be incredibly resilient, and I may. Be able to climb a 14,000 foot mountain, that doesn't mean I can climb Mount Everest, right? <laughs> if, if that's the, the level of challenge. That I, so I do right. think you're right. We need to create an environment in a system where there's the ability for somebody to to overcome those challenges and and to make sure the environment aligns in some way with with the commitments that people have. I think what's important and what Patrick is saying, though, is to go back to, to the thing we talked about, I think at the start, the perception is that the failures that we see among people in Appalachia, it's their failures. It's, it's their fault, familiar, right? Yeah. It's, it's something about them and not something about the environment. And that's, that's what we need to do to address is to acknowledge that there are people who, who, who come with bringing great strength. If, if they can live in an environment where their strengths can be brought to bear, there are some incredible champions working at the community level to make a difference. People who are doing incredible work to, to, to make a community that's, that's more receptive to people. A lot of that work is, is hidden. Again, as I said in the beginning, I mean, it seems like the most important work you
0: can do is kind of convene people, is to support, to lift up local folks. You're not going to do all this work yourself, but you know, you can you can add your your bid. and that's one of the things we try to do on the show, you know, talking to various organizations that are doing that hard work. Randy, you're in this job because you have to be optimistic. <laughs> you you know, it's, you know, I, and I don't expect you to be anything otherwise, but it's um, but it's hard work, and uh, I think we can't forget just how heavy the lift is.
1: Well, and to that to go back to your point, we can do that hard work in a good way on our own. We can do great work when we're collaborating. And and you have these these children, multi-dimensional youth who who are encountering schools and healthcare providers and social services and maybe juvenile justice. All these entities working with the same kid, it's much more power if they're working together. And and I do think that's maybe the greatest work we're doing is if we can bring those entities together and if we can serve them in a way that, that we can help to build that collaborative effort, uh, there, there's great power in, in, in that. It's a great place to end. Randy, Patrick, thanks
0: so much for taking some time to talk with us.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Angela Lynn. Mike Foley, curator of the WCBE Podcast Experience, worked the recording equipment at the WCBE studios. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss our next episode in which I talk with universal healthcare advocate and all-around great guy, Dr. Ian Bett. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, please be in touch if you have ideas for guests or topics or ways we can improve the show. Thanks so much for listening
1: and see you next time.